Okay, here we go. Our mission here at East Bay Calvary is more and better disciples, more and better. And we've talked through a number of steps along the way. And, and one of them, the very first one we talked about last week, is pray that God would open doors. Before we ever open our mouth, before we ever go out, before we ever connect, our first activity is to pray. We mentioned Colossians chapter 4, and here's how the Apostle Paul mentioned it for us, because prayer is so critical in this whole avenue of disciple-making. Here's what he says. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains he says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Then he mentions them. Now be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Season with salt that you may know how to answer everyone. Colossians 4. And so here's what he's saying. You know what? God's the one that opens doors. God makes the way and the opportunity for us to connect with people. And so what we need to do is to be able to pray and say, God, please do this. Do this in my life. Do this for our church. Do this for your kingdom's sake. And then he mentions, after we pray, here's a few other things we talked about. God's plan for making followers of Jesus is you. You're God's plan for making followers of Jesus. The Great Commission is... Go and make disciples. That's to every single one of us individually. I'm God's plan for making disciples. I'm God's plan. That's our phrase. I'm God's plan. Would you say it with me? I'm God's, I'm God's plan for making disciples. And then after that, he mentions, we talked about another thing. <clears throat> God's program for doing it is our everyday life. Oftentimes people think, you know, our program to make disciples must be on Sunday morning. Well, on the contrary. God's program for making disciples is on Monday all the way through the week and even Saturday. It's every day. It's our life. It's our work. It's our play. It's our neighbors. It's our family. It's everywhere we go. And so God's plan for making disciples of Jesus is you. God's program is our everyday life, and then we look and, and pay attention to the opportunities that he gives us. So here's the big ask. I'm just going to ask it of us. Oftentimes, churches don't come out and say it. I'm just going to come out and say it. I need you. We need every one of us. Here's what we're going to ask of all of us, even online people and in-house people. Here's our big ask, is build into someone's life over an extended period of time to help them take their next steps with God. That's what I'm asking. Build into someone's life. Get intentional about a relationship. And that could be, that could be to invite them to Jesus in the first place. It could be to invite them back to Jesus. 
It could be to help them take their next step as a believer, but whatever it is, we get into their lives. We take the time. We connect with them. We go out together. We have a relationship with them, and relationships are the conduit through which disciple-making best flows. That's what it is. Now, here's what we want to talk about today. The biggest obstacle to disciple-making is... Fear, and fear brings excuses. And I'm just going to say the obvious. We are the kings of excuses. And if you don't believe me, you must not have children. You know, why they didn't do their homework why they didn't do their chores, why they hit their sister, why they ate all the cookies. There's just excuses for everything. We are the kings of excuses. I read this one story this week of a dad who went to his his two boys, and he says, I want both of you to do these specific chores before I come home. They've all got to be done. And then the dad came home, nothing was done. Not a thing. And he went to the older one, he went to Billy, and he says, Billy, nothing was done. What did you do the whole time that I was away? And Billy kind of sheepishly said, I I, I didn't do anything, Dad. I just sat there and didn't do anything. And then Dad turns to Johnny and says, Okay, Johnny, the younger son, and what did you do while I was away? And Johnny says, Well, I helped Billy. (laughs) I mean, we're just the kings of excuses. Now, I'm going to have you turn to Jonah, Jonah 4. While you're turning there, I'm going to tell you about the person in the Bible with the most excuses. God answered every one of them, and he still wimped out. And this was Moses. Because in Exodus 3 and 4, God told him, I want you to go to the people of Egypt because I want to set my people of Israel who are enslaved there, I want to set them free. And so then all of a sudden Moses, in fear, because he's got to go back home to the people he did dirty to, he's got to work all this out. Moses starts to get afraid and he starts to come up with all these excuses. I'm just going to work you through. You can see it on the screen while you turn to Jonah. But here's Moses. And so Moses tells God all these excuses. And he says, you know what? God says, I, I want you to go there. I want you to, I want you to hit the people of Egypt. We're going to get these people free. And then all of a sudden, Moses says, but who am I? I mean, who am I to do this? And so there's this feeling of inferiority. God, I can't do this. I'm a nobody. And God, God ended up answering and says, I'm going with you. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. I'm going to go with you, and we're going to do this. We're going to set my people free. And then Moses is like, okay, I know you had a reason for that. But then he's like, but I don't even know what to say. Like, who am I going to say sent me? I don't even know what to say. So there's this feeling of incompetency. I I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do. And God says, okay, well... Here's what you're going to say. Here's how you're going to say it. 
And then Moses comes up with another one. What if they don't believe me? And I'm sure if we were God, we'd be saying, come on. Like, really, how many excuses? And there's this whole issue of credibility. You know, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe my message. Then God says, okay, I'm going to give you some signs. Take the staff with you. It's going to do things. You're going to get their attention. It's going to happen. And then Moses goes even farther. Here's the one he's most famous for, but I'm slow of speech. I don't really talk eloquently. And God says, guess who made your mouth? Like, I take everything of who you are into consideration to your calling. It can happen. And then finally, at the very end of this, Moses says, okay, pardon me, God, but please send someone else. Just send someone else. And of all of the reasons God gave him, everything God worked out, all of the lame excuses that Moses came up with, God didn't need his ability. God just needed his availability. God needed him to be open. God was going to do the heavy lifting for him. And I'm telling you, there's one point. I'd never read it before this week. This may be news to you. I'd never read this, but here... Ten verses after the please send someone else, and God says, okay, you're going to go. We're going to work with Aaron. It's all going to work out. It's going to happen. And Moses starts going there. <clears throat> I never saw this verse before this week, Exodus 4.23. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Did you know that? Finally, a time where I'm like, you go, God. I get it. How frustrating. To have a patriarch that you give all these promises to, then he's like, just do it with someone else, not me. And the Lord was going to kill him, and thankfully through a gracious act of Moses' wife, God ended up sparing Moses. Obviously, God didn't kill him. It could have ruined the acting career of Charlton Heston if he did. But here's the truth I want to get across to you right now. God doesn't buy a one of our excuses. The only people that believe our excuses is us. What we tell ourselves of why it'll never happen and why it can't happen and why I shouldn't be doing this outreach for God, the only people that believe that is us. God doesn't believe a thing about it. Don't think God's in heaven saying, oh, she's right, she can't do it. Oh, that's right, he is inferior. This will never work. God's promises stand. It rests on his character. He doesn't believe our excuses. Let me just navigate from Moses, and we're going to go over to a prophet that was reluctant, and this is how we're going to finish up. Because this is the greatest issue really facing the reality of following up on God's mission. And here we are with Jonah. First we had a reluctant patriarch, now we have a reluctant prophet. God told Jonah, I want you to go and deal with the people of Nineveh. I want you to preach 
repentance to them. I want them to turn and come back to me. And so here, Jonah, instead of following up on what God says, Jonah's like, in the opposite direction, I'm out of here. I don't want to deal with the Ninevites. And he goes in the opposite direction. And so there's just a number of things that we, we can't go through all of it, but God brings a great storm upon the boat that he was in. And then God brings along a great fish that swallows him up and takes him on a very direct course to Nineveh and spits him up there. And then there is the message that is given, and then there is tremendous repentance in Nineveh, and the people put on sackcloth, and they take on ashes upon themselves, a symbol of their humility, like, God, we are, we are wrong, and we stand before you in need of your grace and forgiveness. And at the very end, which is where we're going to finish up, is the great lesson. This is the lesson that God gives Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. And of all the excuses, Jonah's is the worst. And it's a plague and a blight upon the church of America today. So notice, after God sending Jonah, Jonah fleeing, God sparing Nineveh, Jonah was upset in verse 1. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, chapter 4, verse 1, and he became angry that God was sparing the people of Nineveh. And here he's like, take away my life, Lord, verse 3. I would rather die now. This is the last thing I wanted to see. So God is going to teach some critical lessons, and you know God is at work, because check this out, starting in verse 6. Here's how my translation reads. God was going to teach a lesson. He says, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, some translations say a gourd, and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort in that hot desert sun. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So God provided the plant. Notice verse 7, But at dawn... Guess who also provided a worm? What does your translation say? Who provided the worm? God provided the worm. It chewed the plant and it withered. And then when the sun rose, verse 8, guess who provided a scorching east wind? God. God is up to lesson teaching for Jonah. And it beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would better for me to die than to live. And God says, okay, lesson time right here. Here's the big lesson of Jonah. It's the lesson of priority. It's the lesson of compassion. And here in verse 10 and 11... God introduces a word that is critical to our understanding of the text. But the Lord said, verse 10, you have been concerned about this plant. You didn't tend it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. And should I not have concern? There's the repeated phrase. It's concern. The idea is to regard with tremendous compassion 
So Jonah didn't have <clears throat> a fear of his ability. He didn't have a fear of his inadequacy. He didn't have a fear of his credibility. <clears throat> the thing that Jonah ended up lacking, the worst excuse of all, was he lacked compassion and care for others. And God pointed it out. It's not that he didn't care, but the only thing he cared about was what impacted his life in a positive way. So let's just find out for a moment. God's concerns, and here's the big understanding for us, God's concerns must be our concerns. God's concerns must be our concerns. Here's the thing. God had already changed the hearts of all these unbelievers in Nineveh. And now the heart he wanted to work on was to change a believer's heart. And so God's concerns must be ours. So first off, Jonah was concerned with something, but he was concerned with comfort. So let's talk about it. What was Jonah's primary concern? And it was about this gourd. Interestingly enough, here's the only time in all of Jonah that we see Jonah happy. He was unhappy with the commission. He was unhappy with the accommodations. He was unhappy with God rescuing him. He was unhappy with, <clears throat> with Nineveh being repentant. He was unhappy with the whole thing. And then at the very end, whoop, up comes this gourd. He gives him shade. And finally, Jonah becomes happy. And so this tells us something. Jonah was concerned with comfort. He was concerned with his comfort. And here comes a couple big observations for us. You know what people are most concerned with when you see joy when it happens. And then you also know what people are most concerned about when you see anger when it doesn't happen. So let me ask you. I'm going to take a quick poll. Get your big brains on for a moment. Some of you have been in church for a while in your life. Some of you may have even been in a few different churches in your life. So I'm going to ask you a question right here. Think in your mind for a moment what things church people have gotten angry over. Don't say it out loud, please. Please. What things have church people gotten angry over? So think about it. So when I was meditating on it this week, I was thinking about, um, I've been in hundreds, hundreds of church meetings. Brother, thank you. I can preach for another hour now. <laughs> and everyone can thank Mike Fischel for that. <laughs> what do people get angry about in church? Because I'm thinking, I've been to hundreds of elder meetings deacon meetings, committee meetings, and then church business meetings. Now, I know what people get angry over. My book is coming out soon. <clears throat> I'm telling you, out of 30 years of pastoral ministry, and out of hundreds of meetings, I have yet to hear someone be upset that people were not being reached and people weren't coming to Christ. 
and that we weren't individually disciple makers. I've never heard it, ever. I've heard about coffee. I think maybe once or twice I've heard about music. Just kidding. I've heard about dress. I've heard about Bible translations. I've heard it all, except I'm upset that our church has gone for a year and there's dust in the baptistry. That infuriates me. I've never heard someone say, when was the last time that we as people have been leading people to Christ? Or who has the heart of someone in their life and they are working and meeting with them weekly? I've just never heard it. And as we look at Jonah, the only thing he showed any concern for was what gave him comfort and made him happy. And just flat out, he didn't share the values of God. Prophet, yes. Good theology? Oh, yeah. You see his theology up in uh, chapter 4? Verse 2. Listen to this. I knew, speaking to God, I knew you are gracious and compassionate, God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Wow, Jonah the theologian. You've got it spot on, brother. Your theology rocks. Problem was, His theology was what he knew about God, but it wasn't reflective in his life. He wasn't compassionate. He didn't care. The only thing he was concerned with was his comfort. Here's what concerns God. It's this. God was concerned with people. People. And this is... um, Verse 11, God says, And should I not have concern? Shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? There's some animal lovers in here that are like, I'm glad God talked about animals. He was concerned about taking them out. And some people wonder, like, um, what does he mean these people can't tell their right hand from their left? So some people say, you know, maybe that's kids. Or maybe there were a lot of developmentally challenged people in Nineveh. Or maybe he's talking about spiritual discernment. And I, and I, I know that there's debate about it. The truth is, I don't believe that's the focus, is who that is. I think the focus is, is God cares for all people. All of them. And Jonah was in a tizzy over his plant, but he didn't give a rip about an entire city that may get wiped out by God for their sin if they didn't repent. 
What a big lesson. So what do we take away with us today? <clears throat> I just want to give you these, and then we're going to finish up. I got four things for you. If you want to write these down or put them in your phone, I, man, I think that they matter. I really think that they matter for you. If you want to talk with a friend about these, go farther with it. When your small group meets, maybe this is one of the first things you discuss. Four takeaways. Number one, God won't ask where he won't enable. God won't ask where he won't enable. Basically, the quick paraphrase on that, dump our excuses. Like God's not going to tell you to do something, but not help you do it. And so away with our stinking excuses. And in fact, what I would encourage you to do, write a promise of God for every excuse we would give. And so, you know, we might say, but I'm scared. Then we can write down words of Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you. To the end of the age, he says, or we could write down an excuse, but I'll fail because I'm not good enough. And then we can write down Jesus' words in Matthew 16. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, if the gates of hell can't do it, us not being able to isn't going to do it either. I won't know what to say. You know what? Paul says, some people sow, some people water. It's God that gives the increase. Writing God's promises for our excuses. Take a step out. God won't ask where he won't enable. Here's number two. Remind each other of what matters most. This is a big deal. Look around you for a moment. You see this gorgeous building. You're going to go out and get in your car and go back to your nice home or maybe go to a restaurant and let me just share with you for a moment all of those things this building your car the restaurant your house will never ever make it to heaven everything on this earth is a goner except for people and so we recalibrate, remind us of what matters most. That's why we talked about last week, pick three. Pick three people. Have in mind people that you want to pray for every day that need to take a step with God. Pray for them. People matter to God. They must matter to us. They need names. They need pictures. Let's get them in our mind and in our heart. And maybe talk to others and say, help me keep my focus on where it matters most. Here's number three. This is a big toe-stomping thing for myself and all else. Beware of comfort talk. Beware of comfort talk. God didn't ask Moses to do the comfortable. He didn't ask Jonah to do the comfortable. And I'm just here to tell you, I don't think he's going to ask us to do the comfortable either. Beware of comfort talk. You know, like, well, how do you want it to be? What would you like most? And instead, gauge success based upon sacrifice for
for the mission of what concerns God rather than success of getting things the way I like them and enjoying my gourd. Beware of comfort talk. Here's number four. Be Jesus to your world. Be Jesus. Jonah's theology was spot on. His life, far from it. And so we tell ourselves what we know about God won't change our world. I'm just here to say it flat out. What you know about God won't change your world. How we reflect our God will. How we reflect him. So I just want to finish with you. How about you stand up, get the blood flowing one last time. Sometimes we think the book of Jonah is about a prophet who ran away and then finally came back. And, um, but let me, let me just stop the thought on that. The book of Jonah is about a very patient God who not only loved Nineveh and was patient with them, he loved Jonah and how patient he was with Jonah. His lame excuses and his opposition to disciple-making And that's the same God we worship today. How patient, how loving to keep us on mission, to hear our excuses, and to teach us lessons to matter in our life what matters most to him. We just bow our heads for a moment. I'm going to give you 20 seconds of quiet. What's God telling you today? What does he want you to be? What does he want your heart to be? And whatever he's mentioning to you right now, tell him in a prayer and tell a friend what God told you. Would you talk to God for a moment? Here's some silence. Father, thank you for your word, man, and these examples. I see myself, and I think we all see ourselves in Moses, and even sometimes in Jonah. God, thank you for your patience, your grace. Thank you for nudging us where we need to go, teaching us the lessons that we need to learn and help us to prioritize the things that you do in his people and bringing them to Jesus and helping him to take their next steps. God, continue to work in our church, grow us to be disciple makers that you've called us to be. And we pray this In the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake, amen.